When I was 13, we went on a family vacation to South Africa. My father was working there in one of the townships. And he said, why don't we turn this into a family vacation? So we flew out to South Africa and was enjoying meeting these amazing people. And at the end of my father's business side, we had three or four days in this little house near the beach. And next to the house was this beach, which was more stunning than I've ever seen before. No one was there. It just seemed like there's beaches everywhere, and it felt like our own private beach. And so we would go down into the water, put our towels on the sand and splash about. I was 13 and just thought, this is the best thing ever. I remember one day in particular, I was swimming out in the waves, doing some body surfing and all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, I was looking around, and I heard these quiet shouts of my name. I thought, what's that noise? I looked around at the beauty of the cliffs, the beauty of the ocean, and I looked and turned towards the beach, and I thought, huh, that beach is a lot further away than it used to be. So much so that actually, I could hardly see the beach. And I saw these hands waving in panic as I'd been caught in a riptide and was swept out to sea. There was no one else around, no one else in the water. And I started to panic. I was not familiar with the ocean and these kinds of currents. So I swam hard towards the ocean. But as we know, the harder I swam the less effective I was. I was getting swept further and further out. Eventually, they got help. Someone came out to help me and brought me back in to safety. But I was in danger. I was in trouble from an invisible enemy. We then actually that day walked up the stairs from kind of the beach stairs back up to the parking lot And as we walked up, we found on the right this yellow sign, but it had been kind of covered by some of the kind of weeds and the bushes. And we pushed away the weeds and the bushes, and it said, warning, beach closed, killer riptide, killer jellyfish, killer sharks. For three days... I'd been splashing around in these beautiful waters, not realizing that there were hidden enemies. Hidden enemies that I'd been warned about but hadn't seen. In our passage today, Jesus says that in your walk with him, in your faith with him, there are hidden enemies that you need to be aware of that you need to see his warning sign that you don't get swept out to sea, that you don't get stung and paralyzed by a jellyfish, or you don't shipwreck your faith and be devoured by a shark. Jesus warns us that when you are a follower of Jesus, the road is not all about ease. But there are enemies. 
and he warns us about them. And over the next six weeks, as we journey through Lent, we'll be looking at what Jesus' teachings are about the enemies of our soul. We know that actually there is something there, right? Because following Jesus sometimes is everything that I want to do, but everything that I struggle to do. <laughs> to follow Jesus is sometimes, a man, I don't really want to. Or I feel distant from him. Or my behavior is like, why do I want to, I want to do that, but why do I keep doing this? Why am I caught up in these circles of habits or behaviors? Jesus tells us that these experiences are normal because we have enemies of the soul. You're not crazy. It's not just you. Jesus says that we are to see the warning signs and therefore know how to avoid, how to resist the enemies of the soul that you can enter into the fullness that God has for you, but you have to navigate the resistance. Jesus summarizes these three enemies of the soul, not as a riptide, jellyfish, and sharks. But he summarizes them in these three categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, I know what you're thinking, because I know what I'm thinking, which is, oh, come on. You know, these categories seem so ancient and pre-scientific. Does Jesus really know what he's talking about? You know, I think of devil sometimes and go, oh, come on, this little red like creature with little horns. Or the flesh, isn't that, oh man, I grew up with like preachers or church people kind of saying, you know, don't give in to the lust of the flesh. And it's just, I just wanted to dance. That's all I wanted to do. Really? I'm not allowed to dance? You know? That's the flesh? Um, or then the world, and then people being angry at people outside, and it's just like, oh my word, I really like people, you know? Um, I got, most of my friends are non-Christians, and I really like them, I love them, I don't, I'm not antagonistic toward them, and so I didn't quite, I didn't understand these categories, because they'd been warped. But what we're going to find over the next six weeks is Jesus helps us understand that these categories are his categories. That his teaching that is so compelling about life and it rings true with the creation of life that these enemies also ring true in his definition of them. That we ought not to throw away these categories just because they've been misdefined. But for Jesus, these categories are alive and well. And if we are not to shipwreck our faith, if we are to actually enter into the fullness of what Jesus has for us, if we are to know his presence and his joy in our lives, then Jesus says, not only fix your eyes on me, but also beware of these enemies. So why don't we begin? We're going to begin with looking at Jesus' teachings on one of these enemies. And we're going to begin with the devil. Woohoo, you say. <laughs> we're going to begin with Jesus' teachings on the devil. Let me just, before we turn to Jesus' teachings, I want to recommend a book to you, which is kind of a companion book to this series that we're going to be preaching through uh, towards Easter. 
And that is a friend of ours, a friend of ours here at Vintage called John Mark Comer. And he's written a book called Live No Lies. And I would highly recommend that you read it, get an audio book. There's a podcast accompanying it where he interviews various people around these themes. One of the most wonderful gifts is to get that book and to read it. It's easy in some parts, a bit heady in some other parts, but I believe in you. You can do it. Um, so check that out. But we want to focus on the teachings of Jesus. So let's turn to John chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 31. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, and he begins in verse 31. He says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you've heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they said. Well, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. But as it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your father. But we are not illegitimate children, they protested. And just so you know, that is not a polite way of saying that phrase. They are making a dig at Jesus because of the story, obviously, his father, he was born out of wedlock. You know that Mary and Joseph story. So they're saying, hang on a minute, if anyone's going to say they don't have a dad, it's you, bro. The only father we have is God himself. But Jesus said to them, but if God were your father, you would love me, for I've come from God. I've not come on my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear. Here we go, here's... Here's the punchline. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. What a passage. Jesus, I love the fact that he's just, he doesn't beat around the bush, does he? For Jesus, the devil is not a myth or a legend. The devil is not a metaphor for some kind of just evil in the world. The devil is one of the causes of evil in the world. And as followers of Jesus, there's lots of things we've come to accept of like, you know what? He is God. He does have the truth about life. His teachings do resonate with what God would teach. And even this then, we must come to him and say, huh, Jesus believes that there's a devil. 
three things we see that Jesus says about the devil. Number one is, there is one. There is a creature. He uses the word diablos in Greek, which means to slander, to accuse. Jesus uses various verbs to describe this creature. He never gives him a name. He doesn't say Bob or Jim. He says, no. He says, he's the thief. He is the accuser. He is the deceiver. Doesn't give him the dignity of a name. But this creature is the one who does these things. And throughout the Bible, we have glimpses into the origin, where this creature came from. And I don't have time right now to give you kind of an overview of that. And so I want to direct you to some resources that if you were like me, I want to go, hang on, I want to know more about this. And so obviously John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies, one of the great resources for you to go, but what about this, is the Bible Project online and their website. And uh, Tim Mackey and the folks there, you can literally, I went there this week and you can type in, devil. And amazing resources come up to help you um, navigate. Who is this? What is this? Where did this evil come from? The Screwtape Letters. How many of you read the Screwtape Letters? Amazing. And then Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Wood. How many of you read that? Amazing. So great. Recommend those things to you. I don't have time to go into it, but it's a fascinating story of how God created life. And actually, it's one of those great, wonderful things about God is the author of life, so we are not the only creatures he's made. I know that that's hard for us in Los Angeles to believe that. But we see that he's a creator God. You know, there's more. And that makes sense. If he's created us, then there's probably more out there that he's created. And how does that interrelate? And one of that aspects of creation that is not human is the devil. That something has happened, which you can read about, that this creature has rebelled from God, and Jesus says he exists. He's not just a figment of your imagination. Now, C.S. Lewis, you know, said this very famous quote. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I always find in every room there's people on both sides of that, right? For me, I'm, I grew up very uh, mathematical and rational and scientific in my thinking. So my bias has always been, ah, come on. We've learned a lot since then, about mental health, about medical conditions, and what we once thought was maybe oppression is now just kind of, you need some chemicals to balance you out. And the other side is other people, other friends and family who are going, no man, I've seen way too much to think it's just chemical. There's this. And if actually, you, we could get obsessed and go, man, the, all the traffic lights went red on Wilshire this morning. The devil's stopping me coming to church. I love doing this. So uh, let's do a little straw poll here. Uh, yeah, some of you will lean towards, eh, some of you will lean to go, mm. um, which way do you go? So hands in the air if you're like me and you go, ah, I err on the kind of, I'm not too sure if it's real. Great. How many of you would err on the, no man, he's everywhere, would err kind of on that side? Amazing. And everyone, everyone else has no idea what they're thinking. But I get it. But I think as Kaiser Soze said, 
The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. So we're going to look at what Jesus says. So Jesus says he does exist. But the second thing he says is his goal, his agenda in life is to destroy. It's to tear down. It's to suck life out. In verse 44, Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't mince his words. He says to murder, to kill, to destroy. That's why in John chapter 10, 10, a couple of chapters later, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus makes the comparison, the complete opposite comparison. He says, look, I am God. I'm the author of life. I have come to bless. I have come to love. I have come to include. I have come to welcome. I've come to forgive. I've come to bring life to you. The devil wants all the opposite of those things. Don't let modern cultural portrayal of the devil dilute what his real agenda is. Like we can turn Netflix on and think, huh, Lucifer is this cool guy behind a bar in Midtown Manhattan. <laughs> or we can watch TV and go, oh my word. Or we can go on that great dessert shop on Lincoln and Venice. Have you been there? Saints and Sinners? Unbelievable. It's like, absolutely, I'm going to sin today and crush that apple pie, you know? Because we feel that actually we reduce what the devil's doing to actually not destroying us, but actually telling us to do things that were once forbidden but are really good for us. We can reduce what his role in is to insignificance or just little guilty pleasures that aren't really that important. But for Jesus, the truth is far from insignificance. For Jesus, he comes to destroy us, to kill us, like sharks or riptides or jellyfish to take away life, not to bring it. And he goes on to say, this is how he does that. Jesus tells us very clearly, this is his tactic. He seeks to destroy you through lies, through lies. Look at verse 44. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, I don't know about you, but I always think that's a really interesting and surprising tactic that Jesus says is the main tactic of the devil. Because if you watch movies or you've been around church for a while, you kind of think the main tactic of the devil would be these supernatural scary moments. We've all seen the exorcism, right? You know, it's just, this is kind of, that's what he's going to do. But in fact, the danger of that is we can just not watch those movies. We can just ignore those experiences and get on with life and not be destroyed and not be harmed. The devil actually has tactics that are far worse than just giving you scary moments. Now, I've been around enough in church and in ministry enough and spoken to people enough that I've seen those scary moments. And this is not the time or the place to kind of tell stories about that. You know, that's probably over a bonfire late at night in the woods. I'll tell you stories. Um, not out of, but mainly the stories because I've seen Jesus being delivered, people being delivered. 
from amazing opposition, spiritual opposition. And I've seen things that are like, okay, we try and reduce all evil in the world to kind of educational or scientific causes. And there's more. That's true, but there's more. But Jesus says, look, the tactics of the enemy are not primarily those. His main tactic, because he knows that it's got greater power, is through deception. Lies. Telling you lies that slowly eat away at your soul and destroy you. Jesus gives us an illustration of this. He says, see, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. From the beginning. And what he's doing then is pointing back to the beginning story in Genesis 1 through 3. That story where humanity is represented in Adam and Eve and we see that actually they're in perfect relationship with God, but the devil comes, represented by this talking snake, and actually he cuts people off from God and they slowly die thereafter, not because he scared them with some kind of devil pitchfork. What's his tactic? His tactic is to come to humanity and deceive them. He comes to Eve, remember, and says, did God really say that? Oh, come on, God wants great things for you. He wouldn't want you not to do those things. If it feels good, do it. I mean, what's wrong with that? And what we see time and time again with the devil and Eve is the same for us today, is that he comes to us and slowly, like a riptide, pulls us away from God through lies, lies about God. Oh man, could you trust God? Does God really have your best interests in mind? Look at your circumstances. Come on, if God really loved you, it wouldn't be like this. You should take things into your own hands. Lies about ourselves. Oh, you're just good for nothing, man. You're, you're unlovable. Man, you've got to prove your worth because, man, unless you prove your worth, you're worthless. Man, you're a failure. Man, you can try that, but you're going to fail. Lies about ourselves. And then thirdly, lives around what the good life is all about. See, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. He wants you to be blessed. He wants you to live a life of meaning and significance. The problem is he comes to Eve and says, yeah, but I, that's great. Isn't that wonderful? God wants that. But I've got a better way to get there. And the way to life, the way to meaning, the way to significance, the devil comes in and says, God wants these for you, but I've got a better way. So Ignatius of Loyola the founder of the Jesuit order, defines sin as an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. You know, God says, look, this is the way to life. It's the way of Jesus. And yet so often we have these lies going, I'm not too sure, actually. I'm not too sure if I do those things, I will be happy. And therefore, I'm going to actually not trust Jesus. I'm going to trust this wisdom over here, this lie over here. He comes to lie. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, the companion book to our series, says this, our war 
against the three enemies of the soul is not a war of guns and bombs. It's not against other people at all. It's a war on lies. And the problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc in our souls. Here's my working theory. As followers of Jesus, we are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the three enemies' stratagem is as follows. And he uses this diagram to show that these enemies are not just isolated, but they're coordinated. That the enemy comes with deceptive ideas, which are ideas which have a ring of truth to them. You know, they're not ideas that we go, I'm not doing that, that's stupid. No, it lands on our, on our flesh, which is the disordered desire, where we go, ha, huh, that sounds good. And then we have a culture that goes, go for it. Go for it. I mean, this is lived out time and time again in our own culture. Let me just give you one example. An idea comes in to a spouse. Man, you've, you, you guys have had a great marriage. You've had a good run, like 25 years. Amazing. But man, no one's going to blame you, man, if it's like, maybe like we've run our course. You know, maybe it's like the, the fire is gone. I mean, come on. Fire, it just can't last. We've had a good run. Maybe it's time just to go. What a great season. But maybe there's a new chapter. Marriage is not a commitment forever. It's just commitment of when the magic is there and there's more magic to discover. That's the lie. And then that lands on disordered desires. You go, ha, huh, I miss the magic. Right? Oh man, he or she is taking a lot of interest in me and I feel that magic again. Oh man, I'd love that. Oh, well, maybe, yeah. We should be proud of 25 years, but... Doesn't, we just uncouple and go, it's okay. And actually, it'd be wrong of me to keep you around in the sense of, because if I'm not feeling the magic with you, I want you to find someone else who has the magic for you. And we can start to rationalize that lie as being good for us. And then guess what? We're in a culture that says, oh man, dude, good for you. You be you, bro. Be authentic to your feelings. It'd be wrong of you to stay in this marriage if you just don't feel it. Deceptive ideas, they land on disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And guess what? It wreaks havoc. They're lies. They're lies. I'm not saying there are marriages that are so toxic that people need rescue. Not saying that at all. But you see how these lies get in, they stir it up, and people cheer you on. You can say the same thing about anything that is like, oh my word, consumerism. Man, if I just have that new car, you know, if I just have a Tesla, man, I just will feel, I feel that what my life is missing. Stuff, right? Stuff. More stuff will actually make me happy. You know what? Yes, I am about myself. 
Ultimately, that disordered desire is that my life revolves around me, not generosity. Yes, actually, I do need to be about me. I need some me time. I need some me stuff. And guess what? But I can't afford it, but it's okay because the world says, it's okay, there's a free credit card you can get. We will help you normalize materialism that will destroy you. See, these ideas, it's a coordinated, coordinated attack on the soul. And it all starts with lies. This is the power of a lie, which is why Jesus came as a teacher. He came as a teacher because he said, I have come that you shall know the truth. And the truth will set you free. It's why Jesus said, to find life in me, repent and believe, which is turn away from the lies and believe the truth. Jesus' spiritual warfare against the enemy is not mostly some kind of prayer meeting where we are fasting for 40 days and shouting at the devil. Do you know what his, his weapon is? Truth. That's a lie. I'm going to believe the truth. That's a lie. I don't need that to be happy. I'm going to believe the truth. That's a lie. Commitment for the long haul, long haul brings the greatest joy for me, my family, my kids, and society. I'm going to believe the truth. The weapon of warfare is truth. I've seen this in my own life again and again and again. I'm going to close with two examples, and maybe these ring true for you. But I grew up in a culture where the lie was, when I was a boy, was performance is everything. Performance is your value. How you perform is your future. To think of the school I grew up in, the best illustration and example I can think of is Hogwarts. Hogwarts without the fun, right? It was performance. And it was all about your grades. It was all about getting into the college. And there was two of them that if you succeeded and you were worth something, you'd go to them. And so everything in school was designed for academic performance and competition to get there. So we didn't have grades. We had ranking, 1 to 30 in the class. Every grade was where you came in the class to encourage com competition amongst us. I remember when at 16, you reduced the amount of subjects. This is the old school system in England. That you'd reduce the amount of subjects to three. And at 16, you had to choose three subjects and deep dive for two years in those three subjects. And you'd have one exam for each subject at the end of your two years. No coursework, no portfolios, no. Everything depended on that exam in that subject. And that exam, you get a grade, and that would, was what you'd get into a college with. So for two years, you go deep, and you're stressed, and you take the exam. And the lie I knew was that I could live into, if I wasn't careful, that my worth and my performance was based on my performance, that my significance was based on whether I'd get to those two colleges, that if I was a failure if I didn't get there, that I was actually second rate if I didn't get there, that I would never succeed in life if I wasn't top five to get there. This was the culture in which I lived. The meritocracy of, if you don't get there, then you're good for nothing. 
Now, I knew this was a lie, but I was struggling with it. And I knew that I had to fight this lie because it would affect everything about me. See, the lies of the enemy become the grid through which you interpret all of life, and your mental health can start to suffer. I was feeling anxious and depressed, worried about my future. So I thought, I've got to do something about this. So I took the exam, and I didn't know what the results would be, but my school said, we need, we're going to mail the results to you in three months' time. Could the tests go off to an independent testing um, person, and they send the grades back, and the school then mails the results to you. My school was cheap, so they said, we need, you need to give us an envelope with your name and address on it, with a stamp, so that we will then send it to you. Do you, remember, do you remember stamps? I explained to my kids the other day what a stamp was. <laughs> Holy moly. So I did. I wrote down this envelope. I got an envelope, wrote my name and address, put a stamp on, and gave it to the teacher. But before I gave it to the teacher, I turned it over, and I wrote three words on the back. Where I knew I would open up the envelope, right where the seal was, I wrote three words. Three words that I needed to know that would replace the lie that performance determines my worth and my future. That actually the truth I needed to hear was he determines my worth and my future, regardless of the grades. And so I wrote down three words. I wrote down in shorthand, I knew what it would mean. I wrote down, praise God anyway. I sort of praise God anyway. Because I knew I would need to hear that before I opened up the envelope. Anyway, three months later came along. I was worried about my future, worried about where I was going to go to college, worried about my whole life depends on getting into these colleges. And I got my results. I remember the day the envelope came and I, I was worried and I turned over and I'd forgotten I'd written that. And I stopped. I said, Lord, what's in this envelope? does not define me, does not define my worth, does not define my future. That's a lie of the enemy. You do. And I opened up the envelope, took out the paper, looked at my grades, and they were not what I hoped. I wasn't going to get in to one of those two colleges. but I could praise God anyway. Because he is my future. He is my worth. Not the lies of my performance. The other time I felt God really replace a lie with a truth, when I was in my mid-twenties, and you know the story, I left Jesus for a while, some things I experienced in church, and I did, caused havoc. I call it, I had a spiritual breakdown and I left the church for a while. But I came back and there's a bigger story there, but I came back. But I came back and I was trying to be back in church and there was something about my past, what I'd done and all the things I felt guilt and shame about that I was trying to follow Jesus again. And I knew technically that I was forgiven, but if that guilt and shame was like a backpack of darkness that I dragged around everywhere. The lie that the enemy was feeding me was you're good for nothing. Who could love you after what you've done? 
You've, there's way too much spilt milk, bro, for you to actually have a clean start. No way. I mean, you've got to hide because if people find out, they will totally reject you. I mean, there's grace and then there's what you've done. And so I was following Jesus, but you know what? I believed that lie. I believed I was forgiven, but I was also on the substitute's bench in the kingdom of God. I lived into that. I hid in the shadows. I would come to church, but hide in the back. Not that you're hiding in the back. I loved you. I love you. (laughs) But if someone ever wanted help, it's like, well, they wouldn't want me because I'm damaged goods. A year went by and I was still living into this lie. And then one day I went to visit my mum. We drove up to visit my mum and she said, I'll come to church, it's Sunday. So I went to church and typical mum, she sat near the front. I wanted to hide at the back. But there was a visiting preacher there. And I sat in the front, about third row back. And at the end of this guy's sermon... He said, we're going to worship now, and I believe God wants to actually meet with some people in particular. And during my sermon, I felt one thing in particular for one person in particular, and it's you. (laughs) I was going, holy, I'm trying to hide. It's you. I thought, oh no, is this going to be like more shame? More open, like what have you done? But he was very kind, very generous. He said, look, we're going to worship and I'd love you, young man, to come up and I'd love just to pray with you. I was very scared. And the two fears, I thought, I can't admit what I've done. I'm not, it's so shameful, he'll reject me. And then secondly, I thought also, I don't know who you are, bro, but I'm not sure if I trust you. I've been around church long enough that people like you push people over. And so, I, you know, Pentecostal church. And so, uh, I walked up here and he met me and he was nice, but I did, I got to say, I did take the prayer prayer defensive posture. I was like, you're not going to push me over. And he went, relax, relax. I just felt, he was so humble and so lovely. He just said, look, when I was preaching, I just felt God whisper to me. I may be wrong. I just felt God whisper to me that you've like recently come back to him. I just saw all over you this guilt and shame that was weighing you down. And it says in 1 John that when he forgives us, he cleanses us. That there's a new start for you. And I believe today he wants to break that lie that you are your past. That he wants to cleanse you. And... He said, can I pray for you? I went, sure. So I just stood there and kind of, okay. I kept my eyes open just in case. <laughs> and all he did was this. He said, Father, he said some nice prayers. But then he went, I was like standing like this. And then my back, he went down my back without touching me. He said, I just break off in the name of Jesus these lies of this guilt and shame he's carrying. That Jesus has paid the price that when you forgive, you not only forgive, but you cleanse. And when he did that down my back, I felt this dark weight drop from my shoulders. I 
buckled to my knees and wept because I knew, I knew I was forgiven and cleansed of the darkness in my life. And in that moment, I knew, God, I'm not defined by what I've done, but you love me and came to me. Because of what I'd done, you came to rescue me. I'm not defined by what I've done because you took it on the cross and you've buried it, you've defeated it. And Lord, the guilt, you know, I've tried to rectify the things I've done to others. But Lord, even if I can't, I know. And he, he gave me this assurance. He said, yeah, just as much as your future is not defined by your past, I am bigger than your brokenness. So in other people's lives, I am bigger than what you've done to them. You are not God to them. Leave them to me. I will heal where you have brought pain. Leave that with me. And that truth then became my reality, that I'm forgiven and cleansed. Jesus says, lies enslave, but you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is spiritual warfare. This is your future, to be defined by the truth of Jesus, no longer enslaved by the lies of the enemy who only wants to destroy you.